right near the end of uh, C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan the lion takes Lucy, Edmund and Peter and everyone to the new Narnia, to what we'd call heaven or the new creation. It's a place of astonishing light and beauty, a place where every blade of grass seems to mean more and where every creature sings just for the sheer joy of the Creator. It's an amazing place. It's a place where everything is just so real in in depth and colour that the mere sight of a daisy takes your breath away simply because of its beauty. But then in the midst of this picture of splendour, the children see a group of dwarves huddled together, convinced that they're sitting in the rank stench of a barn, a place so dark they can't even see their hands in front of their faces. And the little girl Lucy, she's so upset that the dwarves aren't enjoying the new Narnia, that she begs Aslan to help them to see what they're missing out on. And Aslan replies to Lucy and he says, Dearest Lucy, I'll show you what I can do and I'll show you what I cannot do. And then he shakes his golden mane, of course he's a lion, and this, and this sumptuous banquet instantly appears in front of the dwarves and each dwarf is given a plate heaped with juicy meats, with glistening vegetables and these plump grains of rice. It's just a fantastic banquet. Each also receives a goblet brimming with the finest wine anyone could ever hope to drink. It's just amazing stuff. And then the dwarves, they dive in and they start this meal and instantly they start gagging and complaining. That'd be right. They lament. That'd be right. Not only are we in this stinking stable, but now we've got to eat hay and dried cow dung as well. And then they sip the wine, they sputter and look at this now. Dirty water out of the donkey's trough. Disgusting. The dwarves, Aslan goes on to, to say, had chosen suspicion instead of trust and love. They were prisoners of their own minds. They could not see Aslan's gift of the new Narnia because they would not see it. They refused to see it. So what can Aslan do but leave them to the hell of their own devising? What else could he do? Do you ever choose fear and suspicion over trust and love? What do you see when you look at the talents that God has entrusted to you? What do you see when you look at the talents that he's entrusted to the people around you? Are you a bit like the dwarves? Do you only see the flaws? Do you only see the faults? Do you only see nothing of real use in God's kingdom? Or do you see the massive opportunity all around you? And do you hear the invitation to jump off the bank and into God's river flowing with grace? Let's pray. Loving Father, thank you for the promise of the gospel at work in the lives of your servants. And we pray that you would unveil for us again today the wealth that we carry around with us each moment. We pray for opportunities to give it away and to share it in those places you've stationed us in this life. We pray that we would recognise the sheer magnitude of the grace and forgiveness that you've shown to each one of us through your Son and his cross. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The Bible tells us that each of the three servants in the parable received talents. A talent was a measure of weight and in this case it was a weighty amount of money which we would liken to a lifetime of wages or investments, you know, a lifetime worth of cash. 
One servant received one talent, a weighty amount in its own rights. Let's not forget that. Another twice that amount and then another five times as much as the first bloke. And two servants wasted no time in putting their talents to work. The Bible says immediately, immediately they they moved out and invested the talents they had received. They had some gusto, they had some inspiration, they had some joy as they moved out into the land of opportunity and in fact both of them doubled their money. Great investment. And when the master returned, he was thrilled. He was thrilled and he commended them. Wonderful, well done. He goes on to say, you are good and faithful servants and he put them in charge of even more and invited them into his celebration. We've been talking about wedding celebrations, it seems like, for weeks. The third servant simply gave the master back what he'd received, every single coin. He excused himself from doing anything with the money because he'd been afraid of losing it. He was driven by fear. And not only that, he then blamed the master for expecting too much of him. He couldn't see that it was the generosity of the master that had given him this weighty sum in the first place. He opted for fear and suspicion like those uh, dwarves in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. He couldn't see the opportunity. He couldn't see the possibility of adventure. He couldn't even see just the opportunity to have a go. Instead, he tried to play it safe. He played it safe. Every last cent was accounted for. No less, but no more either. And the master, he gets stuck into him. You're a lazy and good-for-nothing servant. He scolded him and he accused him of not at least putting the money in the bank to earn some interest for him. And then he took away what he'd been given and gave it to the one who now had ten talents, ten lifetimes worth of investments or wages. And he threw, the Bible says, the worthless servant out into the dark. I don't know, do you reckon he's a bit unfair? Is this master a bit tough? God has given each one of you gifts. Every single one of you here. No one is lacking. No one is without. And you might not think that your gifts are worth much in the kingdom of God. You might think that. But they're weighty gifts. They are gifts more valuable to the people of Cairns, more valuable to your family, more valuable to your friends than all the money in the world. They're gifts unique to you as well. Unique to you, think of that, that God created you and formed you and had a will for your life and gave you gifts that are unique to you. The perfect fit according to the will of God who not only created you but rescued you through the cross of Jesus Christ, the weightiest gift of all history. But your talents, the gifts of God, those things that he's given to you, they're not all the same. The Holy Spirit gives different spiritual gifts to different Christians to build up the church and to make Jesus known to the world. God doesn't expect the same from all of us either because we're all different. What he does expect is the same responsibility. What he does expect is the same faithfulness with what you've received. One person makes, I don't know, beautiful meals. They make beautiful casseroles or great treats for others they bake. Some open their homes and share the gift of hospitality. Other people serve by showing mercy and love for people who are sick. 
There are people who use their gifts working with children. They're out there now. Some use upfront speaking gifts. Some prefer one-on-one with their neighbours or their friends or strangers. We're blessed with people who use musical and singing gifts to inspire our worship. Some have been entrusted with great wealth and they use it to serve God and to bless people's lives. There are those who have gifts with their hands. They can repair and they can build things for others in ways I'm just, I stand in awe of that. Some understand computers and technology. You know, you just can't make comparisons in the Church of Christ. There's no point in comparing yourself with someone else. It's useless because we're all different in what we have and what we use for God. What we have in common is that all of us are called to invest in his kingdom with the gifts and abilities that we've received. The man punished, the man who was thrown out, he was the man who did nothing. He's the guy that wouldn't even try. He wouldn't have a go. I was afraid, he said, as he buried the master's money in the ground. He buried the treasure in the hole. Fear about the master paralysed him from being creative. It paralysed him from taking a risk and using the money given to him. What do you do when you're afraid? Do you freeze up? Do you hold back? Do you become inhibited and cautious or maybe withdraw from people? Is that what you do? When we live in fear, we don't venture very far. We're often so worried about our own salvation that we have precious little energy to think about others. We're happy if the church is there when we want it as long as it doesn't ask too much of us. Well, Jesus' story condemns those who want to keep things as they are, who want to play it safe without commitment, without risk. And it makes sense having the great news of the gospel is fantastic, but if all we do as a church is preserve it and not live it and give it away, are we not guilty of burying the treasure, God's treasure in the ground, in a hole? For God's sake, use it or lose it. That's what Jesus' parable says to us today. The unfaithful servant had his money taken away. Instead, Jesus saves, but not like us in banks. Jesus saves people by giving himself to people, by showing extravagant mercy and kindness. Now, you know churches that refuse to use the gospel, they don't stay wherever they are or wherever they were. They usually die. They lose what they once had. There's a warning there for all of us. I said before, do you reckon the master was fair throwing that poor servant out? Because when I read this parable, and I have for years, I often struggle with that, with that master's anger. It's a tough one. I mean, at least he got his money back from his servant. I'd be happy if I got my money back, if I'd maybe been ripped off or something, but didn't he go a bit over the top? I mean, how do you respond to the master's anger? Jesus told this parable not long before he went to the cross, friends. The cross where he gave you and me everything he had. The cross where he invested his life in yours and mine. The cross where he made a short-term sacrifice for a long-term gain, our gain. And now he calls you and me to do exactly the same. In the light of the cross of Jesus, in the light of his massive sacrifice for you and me, God's anger 
is justified when we refuse to take a few risks for him, when we play it safe because all we've got in mind is our own interests. You know, I ask the question, maybe my question shouldn't be, Master, how could you do this to the poor servant who only got one talent? Maybe my question should be, God, how could I do so little with my gifts in response to your sacrifice for me on the cross? Maybe that's the question I should be asking. How could I do so little with my gifts in response to your sacrifice for me on the cross? God has given you life. God has given you health. God has given you abilities. He's given you money. He's given you forgiveness. He's given you faith. He's given you a place in his kingdom. Now the call is to use them. Just use them. Not in fear. Don't do it out of fear, but do it freely. Do it freely making those short-term sacrifices for the long-term gain of God's kingdom like he did. I mean, can you imagine what it would be like standing before Almighty God and saying, Lord, I looked after myself. I kept your gospel to myself. Are you pleased with me, Lord? As if God should be happy with that. Keeping the faith doesn't mean keeping it to ourselves. Faithfulness is not keeping the status quo. Faithfulness is doing everything in your God-given power with all you are and with all you have to further God's business of proclaiming Jesus Christ as the Saviour of the world. Your Saviour, my Saviour, but also the Saviour of all the people out there. God doesn't ask how many times did you sit in the pew this year But what happened when you left the pew and went back out into the world that week? Not was the budget met, but did each of you give generously to my mission in the world from what I entrusted to you? Not were you on a committee, but did you use your gifts as a witness to me this year? Not how many new members have you gained, but were each of you taking opportunities to share Christ's love and forgiveness and good news with someone, I mean anyone, this year? And I can picture a fourth servant in this parable too. One who wheels and deals and takes chances but loses the lot. What would the master do? What would God do with a Christian who shared their faith and used their gifts and invested their life in others without fear yet had little to show for it? What would God say to that servant? I reckon he might say, well done, you had a go. Well done. You were faithful with what I gave you. You had a go. For God's sake, use it or lose it. Will you step out this week and take a risk for the sake of the gospel? Will you share out of that grace that is like a river which has flowed into your life, will you share that love? Will you share that good news of Jesus, the forgiveness, the life, the salvation, all the things that... You have in him. We share it with someone. We share it with anyone for the sake of his kingdom. And sometimes use words. In Jesus' name, amen. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for those cleansing waters of baptism that have washed over us. 
We thank you for the call to daily drown that old sinful nature and to rise as a new person, saved and washed, justified and sanctified in you. Help us to walk in what we've received. Help us to use all those gifts and abilities that you've given to us, that your name would be glorified and that our needs and the needs of this community would be satisfied. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.